Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Each fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, pest control, growing your own fruit and vegetables and expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Jenny Bowden, a horticultural advisor here at RHS Wisley in Surrey. Coming up on this edition of the podcast, practical seasonal advice, including deadheading those tender summer favourites, pelagoniums, treating common flower problems and how to tell when your sweet corn is ready to pick. Members of the Glasshouse team select their recommendations for houseplants for every home, a focus on choosing and maintaining trees for small gardens, and my colleagues in the RHS advisory service answer your latest gardening questions. But first, let's get some seasonal practical advice on what to do in your garden now from the team here at RHS Garden Wisley. My name is Matthew Pottage and I'm garden manager at RHS Wisley. Early August in the garden, what should we be doing now? Just walking along top terrace here and looking at our summer flowers, we really want to prolong this bedding scheme till almost the first frost, or right till the end of summer. And really to get the best out of your bedding, you do need to be regularly feeding and watering, but also look at deadheading things. And a prime example would be something like a marigold or a pelagonium, for example. And pelagonium flowers, they can often look a bit mouldy they can look a bit brown and they're obviously quite large so when they do start to die they just they don't look good so the idea with this is to trace down the flower stem back to the stalk where the stalk where it almost meets the main stem and the leaf stem and that will actually snap quite cleanly out of there just push down gently the flower's finished it is ready to release it and break it off clean there. If you just pull off the old petals from the top, you're gonna be left with this old flower stem. It still looks horrible, but it's also an entry point for like botrytis, which is gray mold. So really plant hygiene, keep them clean, just maybe every week or so if you have the time, just to quickly go along, pull off any faded flowers. And this will also really help the plant push new blooms, new flowers. It's not putting time and energy into making seeds, but more flowers. Hello there, my name is uh, Andrew Salisbury. I'm the senior entomologist at the RHS Garden, Wisley. At this time of year, you may notice some pale green and black spotted caterpillars devouring all the leaves on your roses. Uh, these are going to be the larvae of the large rose sawfly. Uh, the adult insect is uh, an insect more closely related to bees, ants and wasps. It's about a centimetre long uh, and has an orange uh, body. You may find these insects with their rear ends stuck into the stems of roses uh, whilst they're laying their eggs. And they leave behind a scar in the stem uh, full of the eggs. The eggs hatch and then you get the caterpillars feeding away on the foliage and they can completely strip the plants. Easy options for control are first of all when you see the adult insects with their rear ends in the stems is just to remove the insects and squash them and if you find the scars with the eggs in on the stems just run your fingernail down it and kill all the eggs inside and the caterpillars themselves can be hand removed or spray with a suitable insecticide. Hi my name is Mario and I work at the RHS Garden Weasley and I look after the vegetable garden. We are now in August, early August and the sweet corn is nearly ready for harvesting. From a sowing in early May, uh, sweet corn takes about 110 days, which is roughly beginning or mid-August, uh, depending on the season, how warm the season is. And the, the way of 
telling if the cob is ready for harvesting is looking at the tassel of air that come on the top of the, the cob. When they turn brown, dark brown, then it's a good indication that the kernels are ready for harvesting. Another way of doing it is uncover the tip of the cob and squeeze your fingernail into one of the kernel. If the liquid that comes out is milky in color, means that the cob is ready for harvesting. If it's still watery in color, means that it needs a few more days. You can find more tips and advice on growing your own fruit and vegetables on the RHS website, rhs.org.uk forward slash grow your own. Here you can also find video guides to key jobs in the garden. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Houseplants come in all shapes and sizes. Some have stunning foliage, some intoxicating scent and others have colourful blooms that can brighten the dullest rooms. Most are easy to grow and require little maintenance. There's a vast range of spectacular plants available to suit every home and sense of interior design. So we asked members of the Glasshouse team here at Wisley to pick out some of their favourite houseplants for every home. Hi, I'm Cara Smith. I work at Wisley Gardens in the arid temperate section of the Glasshouse um, and I look after mainly succulent plants. I'd really recommend succulents to be used as houseplants. They come in all different interesting shapes and forms and children tend to really love them. And they're extremely easy to look after just with a few small tips. You can get cacti with really showy flowers and other succulents which are more foliage plants and have a great architectural form and are great on a windowsill. Some examples of plants I would recommend are aloe variegata, which is a beautiful uh, rosette aloe uh, which has striped leaves and it sends out a lovely uh, orange flower spike another plant is hawerthia you can get all different sorts of hawerthias they're really small plants so they're great if you've just got a small space on a windowsill and they don't need complete sun all the time so even if you've got a shadier space a hawerthia will do really well generally the succulents do better if you can have them on a south or east facing windowsill where they get sun in the morning and then not so much sun uh, through the midday and afternoon. They do love the light but they do need a bit of protection from full sun if it's really really bright. Watering is always an important issue with succulent plants. They do need water but they don't like to be overwatered, especially in the winter time. So in the winter time, cut down on the watering, maybe to once a month. And in the growing season, as soon as it's dried out completely, water the plant and feed once a month with either a fertiliser especially made for cactus and succulents, which you can get in most plant centres, or a general purpose fertiliser at half strength. I'm Greg from RHS Wisley. I work in the tropical section. I would recommend bromeliads as a really good houseplant. They come in all different shapes and sizes. You can get ones from like Alcantia imperialis, which you would need quite a lot of space for, or slightly smaller bromeliads, which would be ideal for windowsill. They're really good because they require hardly any maintenance, to be honest, just a quick spritz over, and occasionally water them in their rosettes. 
There's plenty of them available from garden centres, different specialists. You could probably get one for nearly every situation in your house. Going by colour, you would choose a purple-leaved one for more shadier positions or more silvery-leaved if you want one for full sun. If you wanted to pot them up, they're ideal for like small windowsills because they can be in tiny little pots um, with just fine bark is fine. So yeah, I'd recommend if you had loads of space in a conservatory or the kitchen or bathroom to get an Alcantia imperialis. The flowers can be up to roughly three to five metres long, really impressive red flowers. Obviously these take up a lot of space, but they are amazing if you can grow them. However, if you've got a small area to keep a bromeliad, perhaps something like Vresia splendens, which has amazing black and green stripy leaves um, and a bright red flower spike. Hello, my name is David and I work in the tropical section in the glasshouse here at Wisley. And today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about aroids. Um, aroids come in all shapes and sizes. They're literally little, little small things and they can be huge things too. We're talking to Xantodesias, or little aga, diff, different bacchias and aglaonemas and things like that. Um, they tend to have very good leaves, but some of them are quite plain-leaved, and the plain-leaved ones tend to have really nice spectacular flowers instead, in which case they'll, again, last for several weeks in the house. The, probably the best place for them is a shady corner or somewhere a little bit out of the way um, where you won't knock them over too much. Another very common aroid is spathiphyllum, and they will tolerate a lot of shade, um, some drafts, and those little awkward places in the house where you can't really put anything else. Stick a spathy film there and see how it does. Um, worst case scenario is you'll have a nice green plant which is very lush and doesn't flower very often, but when it does flower it smells very nice and is white and lights the place up. The flowers on aroids can actually be quite varied, but there's one basic shape which is a spade or a spoon, and that is the sepal, and the actual flowers themselves are tiny little dots, and they are appearing on a stick in the middle. For Xantodesias, that spade is curled around and is coloured, for things like spathiphyllums, that spade is flat or slightly curved and is bright white. The centres tend to be yellow or orange, but they can also be red. The two you're most likely to come across in garden centres and supermarkets will be the peace lily, um, the cow lily or the anthurium. Anthuriums almost look waxy and plastic, but they are actually real plants. Um, and as a result, because they're quite fleshy, they'll last forever. And literally the flowers will last for months and months and months. I might get fed up looking at them. Um, but of course, there's many others like philodendrons, which will just glue the whole wall if you've got the space for it. Thanks to the Wisley Glasshouse team. You can find more information on caring for aroids, bromeliads, succulents, and other house plants by using the RHS plant selector, rhs.org.uk forward slash plants. Now, with autumn around the corner, August is the perfect time to start thinking about trees for your garden and what you could plant next month. There are many trees widely available for smaller gardens, both evergreen and deciduous. It's important to make sure you pick the right ones, especially in smaller spaces. So we spoke to Wisley Garden Manager Matthew Pottage for his expert advice. Autumn is a great time for planting trees. The soil is still has warmth, there's still moisture around, and a lot of active root growth can still happen through the autumn months to really help the tree settle in before the winter and then obviously when it begins to grow actively the following spring. Even if your garden is small, I always feel a tree can add real sense of presence, it can add height as a focal point, and obviously it brings benefits for wildlife. When you are looking at a tree for a small space in a small garden, there's always concerns such as subsidence, as water, 
and how much you know moisture roots will take out of a border so it is important to actually give it some thought and think how much room do you have and what could I accommodate some of the small tree genera to look out for things such as sorbus they're things like the rowans the mountain ash they have good autumn color good fruit malus flowering crab apples ornamental apples they have the fruits they have again the spring color which is very good and some of the birch family as well for their colorful bark and not just some of the white cultivars but some of the darker brown and red peeling bark cultivars to look out for you do have your classics like Crotagus, that's the hawthorn. You can get lovely double-flowered selections of hawthorn. And also the flowering dogwoods. Don't overlook things like the Cornus Cusa group and very exciting flowering lengths and good displays. If you're looking for something a little more exotic, there's things like Trachycarpus and some of the palm trees, which will bring you height and evergreen interest and also people often ask i want a small evergreen tree you know what's suitable well if you've got a smaller sheltered position something like a eucryphia or a hoheria will bring you summer flowers they'll also bring you the evergreen foliage if you're in a colder more open position never forget hollies you know ilex they have many many varieties and selections of different foliage shapes textures variegation and also the berries and they can be hard pruned if they get too large but the thing to remember is you know do your homework look at heights look at spreads but then also take into consideration your soil and look at trees in the local area i mean something like a flowering cherry in the right conditions can sometimes get quite large but in an open garden where you've got windswept conditions or you've got heavy soil or you've got really shallow soil you know not all of these trees do make their eventual heights so do kind of you know, look at the nursery recommendations as a guide, look around you in your local neighbourhood and then really start to think, what do you want from that tree? Do you want spring colour? Do you want autumn leaf colour? Are you happy with interesting bark? You know, and just list any kind of attributes that you're looking for and then try and match those up to some of the tree genera that I mentioned earlier and you should be able to find something, regardless of how small your space is, to really add an extra dimension to your planting. When you're looking to sight a tree in the garden, a real important thing is headroom. You know, if you can't see up and there's overhanging branches or there's a building, you know, where is a tree going to go? So do take into consideration headroom. And if you have headroom but not much width, then that's when you're looking for a columnar, a more narrow or sometimes known as fastidiate tree. So something that will go up skinny and tall and that can give, you know, a real interest point to a border. And then also equally important when you're at the garden centre, when you're at the nursery and you're looking at trees, try and get something that looks quite fresh in its pot. If there's loads of woody roots bursting out the bottom and you've got to fight to pull it up out of the nursery bed, it's been there too long. Pot-bound trees don't always establish well and often the roots are already spiralling around. So try and get something with quite fresh white roots maybe peeping out the bottom of the pot. Knock the pot off it, you know. You're going to buy the tree, you're going to take it away. Have a look at it, you're the customer. Have a close look and think, you know, is, has this been hanging around on the nursery for years or is it quite a fresh tree that's going to grow away, you know, straight away? And then also look at the actual plant itself, the stem. Is there damage on the stem? Look at the leader. Is it broken? Has it been pulled back? Is there another branch being caned up, you know, to replace it? What, what kind of shape is that going to make? And if it looks like a mini tree, you know, you've already got an upright stem, you've got developing branches, then super. If it looks like something that's been grown up against a fence and all the branches are going to one side, then maybe leave that for someone else, leave it for their compost heap 
and and you know go to a good nursery go to a good supplier and find something suitable that you know will will establish well and then when you get the tree home and you're looking at planting one of the things so many people get wrong and people don't always realize is you need what's called the root flare level with the surface of the soil and the root flare is basically the point where the roots start growing out from the stem from the trunk from the woody material Trees are not designed to be planted really deep with soil up around their stems. And when you look at a self-sown tree in nature, you see these buttress roots, you see what we call the root flare, and that is just basically where the tree is designed to sit level. It's where it will organise its own anchorage, its stability. And if you take the tree out of the pot and you can't see that root flare, sometimes the compost has been topped up at the nursery and you just need to scrape away any compost to find that point and see that that is level with the ground level at the finished position when you're planting. So important. And then once you've got the tree in the ground, then to look towards best establishment, well, you certainly need to commit to watering it in its first summer, perhaps the next two summers if conditions are very dry and if your soil is dry. But then the other thing to just keep an eye on is staking. If you don't need to stake the tree, then brilliant. Don't stake the tree. It's not always a necessity. But if your tree is going to wobble around and potentially move in the wind... Get a stake in there when you plant. Put it at a 45 degrees angle so you're not bashing the stake through the root ball of the tree. But then you're tying it low down on the tree. And what you want to aim to do with a stake is ensure that the tree can actually still flex and move in the wind, but the root ball doesn't move in the ground. So just a low, small stake is normally sufficient, even for quite large trees. And as a tree flexes and moves, its response will be to put out more root growth. If you put in a really tall stake that's halfway up the tree's stem, it doesn't allow for any movement and the tree cannot respond naturally. So just something low, don't let the root ball move, give it water in its first year or maybe two, and then after that you should be able to take the stake away and do very little but enjoy the tree. Thanks, Matthew. And remember, you can find more information on caring for trees on the advice pages of our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. Now, if you're taking a break from your garden or fancy trying some activities further afield, here's what's happening across all four RHS gardens over the coming weeks. Kids go free in all four of our RHS gardens from now until September 1st. Simply download our voucher for full details at rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens. At Wisley, there'll be a whole host of activities every day to keep you and the family entertained. Explore the air, soil and water around you with sow and grow sessions, amazing birds of prey demonstrations, music and storytelling, outdoor games, indoor craft activities and much more. And remember to check out the Scarecrow Trail too. At Harlow Carr you can enjoy live music in the garden on Sundays throughout August, plus be dazzled by our beautiful annual meadow in the gardens through time area and explore the Learning Centre garden filled with produce and flowers. There's our great garden adventure activities too. At Rosemore, join Rosemore's local produce show on August the 17th featuring displays, cookery and workshops for families too. Plus, on August the 22nd, you're invited to a very special tea party. Pack a picnic and join us for Alice, an extraordinary adventure. An evening of outdoor theatre as Heartbreak Productions present Lewis Carroll's inspired masterpiece. And at Hyde Hall, spend a relaxing summer's day exploring Hyde Hall. Drink in the scents of our magnificent roses. 
See how beautiful a drought-tolerant garden can be in our dry garden and let the kids' imaginations run wild in the new play tower. It's a great day out for all the family, whatever the weather. And don't forget, kids go free. More details of all these events, as always, are on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens. Regular listeners to the RHS Gardening Podcast will know by now that once a month we're joined by my colleagues from the advisory team here at Wisley to answer your gardening questions. So let's hear what you've been asking this month. My name's Tony Dickerson. I'm a horticultural advisor with the RHS here at uh, Wisley. I'm Guy Barter. I work in the advisory service here at Wisley. My name's Rob Sterling and uh, I work in the advisory service here in Wisley. I'm Liz Beale. I'm a plant pathologist here at Wisley. The next question is from John Aitkins, um, who's written to say, my garden is suddenly looking rather drab. What can I plant next year to give me August colour? I live in Gower in Wales. Guy, what would you like to say about that? Well, my favourite uh, plant for August colour are dahlias. Uh, the troopers are widely sold and cheap to buy. You can buy young plants. They need lots of light and a good fertile soil, but they go on flowering. They really respond well to deadheading and they go on flowering until the nights get really cold sometime in October. So dahlias would be my choice, but also there's lots of other uh, tender plants in your area. Uh, fuchsias will grow very well because of the mild winters. So you could, uh, you could plant hardy fuchsias as well for late summer colour. I guess another of these slightly tender plants, salvias, enormous range, do very well, need a sheltered spot, obviously not suitable for cold locations. And then beyond that, things like crocosmias will go right into the autumn. And for something really suitable for a coastal location, eryngiums, sea hollies, which again will give a long display right into the autumn if the weather's warm. And certainly on some shrubs such as roses, for example, you know, if you if you like roses in your garden, choose those which which flower perpetually through the season rather than just those which flower once off in the early season. And I guess amongst, I mean, most annuals can give up the ghost quite early if the weather's particularly warm. But cosmos is usually a good bet for later colour, um, white, pink, similar shades. A question here from Janet Williams. I'm going to Spain at the end of August. I'd like to bring back an olive or a lemon tree. For my mum, what are the restrictions on bringing plants back from abroad and do those restrictions also apply to seeds? As a free um, movement in Europe of plants, but outside the EU, you you won't be able to do this. Um, And some sort of commercial plants will need plant passports, but there should be a free sort of movement of something like an olive or lemon tree. I guess the crucial thing, you must ensure that it's free of pests yes. and disease as yes, far as of you course. can. Yes, And um, Guy, what about seeds? I was going to say that uh, seeds are by far the best way of bringing plants into the country. But unfortunately, olives and citrus uh, won't respond well to seeds. The olive seed takes a really long time to grow and germinate. And citrus grown from seed can take many years before it flowers. Um, What I would say is that uh, because there's always a risk in bringing plants into the country, wherever possible, we'd urge people to buy plants from UK nurseries where they've been grown in Britain. And of course, never, ever under any circumstances bring back any plants that show the least sign of pest or disease because that way disaster could lurk. And and Rob, what about from outside the EU? Are there going to be restrictions on moving plants from there? 
Yes, um, there will be, but it depends really on which country um, they're going to come from. So it's best to, to actually check with FIRA on, on their website um, to see what the restrictions are involving those individual countries. And FIRA, these are the, the plant health. That's correct, and, yes. uh, I think yeah. you probably uh, find their details on the website. Yes. Yeah. Uh, their, their officers usually are... Uh, extremely helpful exactly. and if you've got any doubt at all then they'll certainly help you with all yeah. the technical details L- lots of restrictions re- um, around crop plants for obvious reasons um, but uh, not so many on on ornamentals but but certainly some so it's worth checking mm. and i guess the other area here is with endangered plants particularly uh, some of the rare orchids and even things like cyclamen and so on where you actually need a site certificate which again the, the plant health people can at least point you in the right direction regarding how to apply for those. But generally speaking, as Guy says, most plants that uh, most people are interested in can be accessed in this country and saves an awful lot of trouble transporting them long distances. And certainly um, when one uh, is thinking about bringing plants back from abroad, um, the golden rule is never to actually dig up from the wild. Um, you know, it, it brings all sorts of problems, i.e. pests in the soil, pests on the plant, and also the plant could be one of those plants which is covered by um, a protection um, a law, so, and you could end up being in trouble at customs on return. So so always ensure that the plant is, is from a, a reliable nursery and those plants have been sourced reliably, um, either grown in the nursery or sourced reliably from the wild. Um, and the next question is from Phil Smith in Richmond, London. I'm keen to be environmentally friendly in the garden. What types of used water can I use in the garden? Washing up water from a washing machine. What is grey water? Grey water is any water that's been used for another purpose, like uh, washing up or washing machines, as mentioned. Black water, on the other hand, is water that comes from toilets and such like and should never, ever be used in the garden, obviously. Um, but grey water is pretty good stuff. From the kitchen, we're washing your vegetables or doing the washing up. It's perfectly acceptable and is very useful for containers on the patio and uh, beds and borders near the back door. Things get a bit more complicated with washing up machines, though, because you're never quite sure how much detergent and soil and water conditioner is in them. So for those, uh, we tend to suggest to let that go down the drain. Also, collecting the water can be a bit tricky and may invalidate the manufacturer's warranty. If you want to collect water from the shower the bath that's fine but um, don't let it hang around and get ferment and get nasty because a wee bit unhygienic so best not use it on edible plants and also uh, if you're just going to siphon water out that's fine but if you start um, altering the plumbing to collect water you have to be aware of local bylaws but on balance using grey water for a limited period in the summer is fine for the environment and will save a bit of water and a, a very small amount of money too. And uh, I guess, though, you do have to be a little bit careful if you have water softeners, which uh, the, the chemicals there may actually affect your soil, particularly if it's a clay soil. So that's something that uh, needs to be borne in mind. Right, we, we have a question here. We, we had a very good July in terms of uh, the sun and so on. But uh, if long dry periods uh, exist for a long time, uh, we have a question here asking, you know, do we need what plants do we need particularly to pay attention to? Which plants will need extra watering do we just ignore the plants will they get by without it rob what can you say about that well certainly um some plants with with quite shallow roots such as rhododendrons for example would benefit from uh, from being watered with the shallow roots the surface of the soil is 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 the first place that the soil is, is going to dry out thoroughly and can cause those plants to 
you know, suffer quite extreme stress. And rhododendrons themselves are um, woodland plants, so they've evolved essentially not to um, to, to ex- experience those kinds of in- extremes of drought. So they would naturally also be um, a, a bit more prone to, 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 to drought stress than other plants could be. I guess generally, though, most plants in the garden, herbaceous perennials, will simply die back. The lawn will go rather brown to green up in the autumn. And of course, trees and shrubs, most of them uh, do have extensive root systems. So probably uh, most of them will carry on quite happily, even for quite long periods of drought. What about salad crops, though, Guy, and vegetables? Well, certainly um, anything leafy needs to be kept moist at all times. But other plants, you can make an economy in water by only watering them when they're in flower. So in August, sweet corn will be coming into flower, and that could do with a a good soak every 14 days. Runner beans are extremely sensitive to dry soil, so they need a good soak every week, really. And, of course, anything newly planted, transplants need to be watered in until they can grow roots. So, um, yeah, water is is quite a high priority for the vegetable garden. But in a hot, dry summer like this, even soft fruit can look a bit manky as it runs out of water. So a soak every 14 days if they start losing leaves is worth considering just to keep them growing and cropping for next year. And uh, Phil Smith also asks what vegetables he can plant now. Um, Living in, in London, where it's warmer and sunnier than most places, his options are quite open. So here we'd be looking at salads, uh, radishes, lettuces, chicory, endives. They'll all crop well sown in late summer. And also plants for next year. So onions can be overwintered, salad onions in particular. The timing's quite crucial, so we're looking about the third week in August. And also uh, spinach can be sown very late in the month. And uh, chards and sea kales will crop well in spring sown now. Spring cabbage... So now we're transplanted in the autumn will grow well, but there's more. In London, because it's so warm and sunny, there's even the chance to make a really late sowing of French beans. And uh, these will, given the reasonable weather, will crop in late September, early October before the frosts come. And I guess, Guy, French beans are quite fast growing and do catch up. But something like sweet corn, would an early August sowing be successful or are we just pushing our luck there? Sadly, um, if only a few weeks of growing weather left only plants with with, with big seeds and fast uh, growing cycles will complete their life cycle so french beans have a nice big seed they grow fast sweets corn's got a big seed as well but unfortunately its metabolism requires a great deal of warmth so that uh, by early september the temperatures are falling away and sweet corn grow falls back very fast so sweet corn won't actually reach maturity in fact uh, the first week in june is about the last date for sweet corn Thanks as always to my colleagues from the advice team. Remember that the RHS advisory service is free to RHS members and the team can be contacted by phone, email, in writing or in person at selected RHS shows. For more information on becoming a member, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Well, we're out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when plantsman Matthew Biggs will take us on a guided tour of RHS Rosemore. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and the podcast team, goodbye. <laughs>